Hello, everybody. Welcome to the store. My name is Oren Stainbrook. I'm your host. This is a podcast specifically created for Southeast Utah. And my guest today is Amanda McIntosh, who is a friend of mine, but also is a suicide prevention specialist and the president of the 501c3 nonprofit Hope Squad, which serves Carbon, Emory, and Grand Counties. The mission of the Hope Squad of Carbon Emory Grand County is to educate, promote, and spread awareness for a healthier community with an emphasis on mental health, suicide prevention, support for suicide loss survivors, and to cultivate a stigma-free approach to seeking help. Together with the partnerships, support, and expertise of multiple agencies throughout the counties, their overall goal is to reduce the number of people who die by suicide. Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, it's really great to see you. I hope we can use this podcast to educate, promote, and spread awareness about Hope Squad and your work. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here, Oren. It's always a pleasure and so impressed with everything that you uh, have to offer to the community. And uh, doing this podcast is just one more way that you are elevating that destigmatization of mental health and and talking about it and making it a part of our everyday conversation. So thank you for, for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So first, I just want to get to know you a little bit better uh, for the sake of everybody listening. If you could just tell us a little bit about your personal history. Um, you know, where did you grow up? How long have you lived in Carbon County? Uh, where did you go to school? What's your, what's your background? Sure. Um, so I was actually born and raised in Las Vegas. And in 2009, my husband and I decided to move to Price, Utah after visiting with family that was already living here. We just kind of decided that uh, the rural life was more our speed and, and how we wanted to raise our eventual family. And so we've been here since then. And uh, uh, we got pregnant with my daughter in 2012. She was born early 2013, Abigail. And then uh, we started, you know, just living life as a threesome uh, until the night of July 21st, 2014, where I watched my husband end his life. And that left my daughter and I, you know, mystified, obviously. And um, she was 16 months old at the time. So I say we, but, you know, we're, we're one in the same. And so in an effort to kind of move through that grief process and figure out what life was going to look like as a single mom and, and in this small community that I really didn't have a whole lot of family roots to, just uh, my sibling, my brother that was here, um, I, I did stumble across the Hope Squad of Carbon and Emory Grand Counties and started getting involved that way. And it just kind of mirrored a little bit of, of I have a degree in, in psychology. My bachelor's is in psychology from Nova Southeastern University. And in coming to the meetings with the Hope Squad, saw all of the uh, all of the education that I kind of stored away come back in, into reality and how that, how I could be involved more, if that makes sense. And so I started, started participating in the Hope Squad events and uh, uh, really enjoyed the work, was learning so much. Um, and then in 2018, there was a special legislative session held uh, in the state of Utah where it deemed Carbon, Emory, and Grand Counties as leading the state in suicide deaths per capita and uh, opioid deaths as well. And so they allocated funding for the first time to our health department specifically, the Southeast Utah Health Department specifically, to, to fund a full-time position for uh, a suicide prevention specialist and an opioid prevention specialist. 
Um, and so my then boss uh, contacted me and said, you know, what do I need to do to get you to come and work in this full time? And kind of gave her my list of needs, you know, as a single mom had to keep up, uh, you know, a lifestyle and she was able to meet that and exceed it. And so I've been professionally doing suicide prevention since 2018, but have been involved in it since about 2014, 2015. So that's kind of the origin of how I got to here. And uh, I don't, I don't regret a single decision that led me here and in a morbid way feel like losing my husband guided me to maybe where I could make the most impact for other families in the community. I relate to that statement so much. Uh, I think I told you at some point in the past when we were first getting to know each other that I lost my youngest brother to suicide um, and I feel the same way. It's just, you know, in a weird way, I'm really grateful for uh, what that did to my life and how it changed me. Perspection, it gives you an interperspection, is that the word? And and uh, just, I don't know, and maybe you feel the same way, it just, I, need, I had a call to service, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, oh totally. Yeah. I'm gonna, I have some thoughts on that. I'll, I'll share later and ask you again about some things, okay. but. <laughs> Just to get a little bit more background on Hope Squad, so I'd like to know what's the origin story of this nonprofit? When was it founded? By whom? And and why at that yeah. time? So in 2013, uh, the powers that be deemed suicide mental health as more of a public sector, public health concern. And so uh, the health departments across the state were, were challenged with um, uh, creating a suicide prevention program at, at each health department. And so Debbie Marvadakis and Kathy Donathan uh, got together and they were uh, employees at the health department at the time and created this coalition. Unfortunately, because Carbon Emory and Grand County are so small in, in the grand scheme of things, we are only, and even still to this day, only receiving 2% of the state's overall funding for suicide prevention. And to put FTE into that 2%, they could only work in suicide prevention for about an hour a week. And you can't make change with that limited um, time frame. And so by creating this coalition, um, and, and Debbie Marvadakis had, had some lived experience with losing family members to suicide as well. And um, she felt very passionate about bringing something, uh, bringing the community together as a whole with partners uh, from all across, uh, all across the, the, the domain to really put forth effort into our community to bring resources and a, a kind of attack it head on, you know, and, and get it into, into the public's eye because for so long, and even still we see it, uh, talking about mental health and suicide, it, it's taboo and people are ashamed to talk about it or they feel guilty talking about it. Um, and, and by creating this coalition, it has brought back, brought through some, some change in the community and how it's looked at. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And the Hope Squad mirrors the, the Hope Squad program that uh, Dr. Greg Hudnell out of the Pro, out of Provo area created for in the schools in that it's a peer-to-peer -peer type program where you teach the, the warning signs of suicide and how to safely communicate suicidal ideation and reporting on suicide, media reporting on suicide just to change the language and the 
the perspective that people have on talking about mental health. And uh, also with, with Dr. Hudnall's program, you learn, you know, in the schools, you learn how to talk to somebody who is expressing suicidal ideation, um, ways to talk them into staying to get help, and then when and where to refer them to help. And that's so much of what the Hope Squad encompasses is just bringing the awareness of what those warning signs look like. Because so many times that's what people say is, I wish I'd known. I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. I didn't know. And so if we can get those warning signs into people's hands, we might be able to combat some of this um, the suicide loss that we're experiencing. So, Yeah, you're right. Sometimes or oftentimes the signs are not at all obvious. I've seen some uh, memes online where they'll put pictures of celebrities or, you know, recognizable people who have taken their own lives and they show a photo of them smiling, looking really apparently happy. And, you know, these photos were taken maybe months before they yeah. took their life. And it's the point was, you know, some, you don't can't always recognize depression. Suicide is, is sneaky and you, you often can't tell when somebody is yeah. at risk. Absolutely. And as, as somebody who's going through dep depressive symptoms, they can sometimes create a mask so that they don't worry their loved ones. You know, they put on this front that they're okay, but behind closed doors, they're really not. And it's to protect their loved ones. They don't want to burden them or obligate them to feel sorry for them or have pity for them or anything like that. And uh, so it, it, there's a whole plethora of warning signs that are not just what we look at as far as somebody's physical appearance, but you know, how they are acting or um, habits and, and uh, mannerisms and things that they're also experiencing or changes in, you know, situation, their situational clues and behavioral clues, uh, along with the verbal clues. And so it, it, getting to know all of those facets uh, is really important. Hmm. I didn't think about this until now, but I was just reminded of a podcast that I had listened to <clears throat> recently that was talking about cultural differences and how black folks are sort of differently affected by suicide and depression and that this this woman who had studied this issue in great depth was trying to explain that the statistics aren't accurate because they haven't been able to effectively measure certain things in certain communities and one of and i'm having trouble recalling all the details but i just remember one of the things she was saying was that they've figured out that for certain cultural groups or or demographics that they they need to tailor their uh, methods to be more appropriate to those those groups and one example she used was saying that in in some some schools wherever she was working where they would be talking with black students uh, they were uh, if they asked questions like have you had suicidal thoughts uh, they were much less likely to to admit that they had but if they asked questions like do you feel hopeless about the future mm -hmm. that they mm -hmm. were much more likely to respond in, in the affirmative? And that was taken as a sign that, okay, this person is potentially at risk for hurting themselves or other people. Yeah. If they feel hopeless about the future, it's just another way of saying that um, they essentially have suicidal thoughts or, or are at risk. So it's just, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, Cause I, I think it goes even beyond on that 
every community is different and how the community itself um, views mental health and, and suicide. I know that in, in Utah, our um, Pacific Islanders are at a higher risk. Our Native Americans are at a higher risk. And it's it's part of their culture to not talk about it or that it's, it's you're, you're, you know, the cliche, you're weak if you talk about it. Um, they don't air their dirty laundry. They keep it very internal. And so that prohibits um, that self-help seeking behavior. Um, but even into a religious um, format, you know, some religions look poorly or, or look down on people who are reaching out for help. Um, and until there is a, until there is more change and more shift in the way that we view our mental health. And uh, it, I, it, this is cliche too, but talking about our mental health should be just as important about as, as talking about our physical health. And until we can make that paradigm shift where we are talking about it interchangeably, we're going to still continue, continue to see those, um, uh, those, those roadblocks within cultures and ethnicities and, and in communities, right? You know, we have no problem uh, talking about how, oh, I got COVID again, or I, you know, I, my allergies are kicking up, or um, I'm a person living with diabetes, right? But if I say that I'm a person living with bipolar depression, the, the immediate response to that is not going to be the same as saying I'm living with cancer or I have diabetes. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And until we can truly change the way that people talk and think about mental health, they will always see those barriers, unfortunately. Yeah. The Hope Squad has a Facebook page. Is that the best place for people to follow your work and what's going on there with events and, and happenings? Yes, the Hope Squad of Carbon Emory Grand County is on Facebook. We're on Instagram too, but not as active. Um, but the Facebook page is is pretty active and we try to definitely share our community resources as a whole, not just suicide specific. You know, one thing that I've learned in coming into this this work is it really is a whole body experience when you're talking about mental health, not just with physical health and mental health, but um, with our substance use um, issues that we see in our three counties that plays into it with our homelessness or the social determinants of health. All of those things play such a, a prolific role in somebody's overall well-being that it's important for the Hope Squad to kind of be a beacon for those services as well because it really is a whole body approach when it comes to talking about mental health and suicide prevention. Hmm. Makes sense. I was checking out the Facebook page and looking through some of the post history and I saw a, a quote that I really liked. You had shared at some point a quote by the author Lois Tonkin who said, people think that grief slowly gets smaller with time. In reality, grief stays the same size, but slowly life begins to grow bigger around it. I yeah. thought that was so beautiful, really resonated with me. So I wanted to ask you, and you know, maybe you can share more about your personal experience with what happened with your husband as much as you want to. You can say anything you want about it. I, I have a happy to also share my story because uh, I think it's just good to to talk about. You know, to help help destigmatize it and help uh, you know just feel like it's okay to just say what happened because um, because otherwise. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's 
it's going to help us to make sure it doesn't happen again as much as possible. So I think it's good to, to be open about it. But as much as you want to share, my question is, uh, you know, you could just start with that quote, like, how do you interpret that quote? And how has that been true in your life? Yeah. You know, before my husband died, our world was very small. It was he and I and uh, our close, you know, our siblings and our and our cousins, nuclear, and, you know, a, a coworker here and there that we were close with. And I feel after he passed, I was kind of willingly forced into a position to be vulnerable and share our story for the greater good of things, right? But that has expounded the relationships and the experiences and the people that I get to come into contact with, um, which further exposes, uh, it further exposes m my desire to help others and that, that my husband, Brian, that his death wasn't in vain in a way that it wasn't for nothing. Um, because of that, I, I have been able to share trainings across the state, really, um, the, the QPR question, persuade, refer training and everyone that I give, uh, we talk about how there's a ripple effect to suicide, right? And for every suicide, uh, 135 people are directly affected. And when I tell the, tell the statistic, I said, you know, you th if you think about it, you may not know 135 people that would quote unquote really miss you. But with every time I get to tell my story and every time I get to give that training, that many more people are directly affected by my husband's loss, right? And so his his story, our story continues to ripple out. And hopefully the training is impactful enough that they will go home and share it with their loved ones. And the message of hope is continued through those ripples as well. And so I, I do resonate with this quote, because had it not been for again, for losing my husband, it would have been a very small world that we raised our daughter in. And now as, as a result, she's exposed to a wealth of community resources, community people, and a whole world of support for when she, you know, hopefully never gets to that point. But if she gets to the point where she's having suicidal thoughts or depressed, depressive symptoms, she knows who to turn to. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think I, I, I'm just so grateful that in a, in a small community, the reception of what I'm trying to do has been so, um, supported and, uh, I, I don't know what other word it's just, I've been accepted and, and looked to for help and and for advice and and you know a gap filler to try and get people to resources and stuff that may not have been known i mean there's just so much of that stems from losing my husband and the potential to save somebody else's life is extraordinary did that answer your question <laughs> yeah yeah thanks for sharing yeah i feel the same way yeah i've, I've like not ever really shared my brother's story publicly you know i've talked to a few handful of close friends about it over the years just told them in detail about what happened but i feel like you know this conversation is maybe just a good opportunity to talk about it because i remember you know after shortly after he died it felt awkward to 
admit what had happened. In a way, it was, I don't know, there's just so many confusing emotions that you go through in the wake of something like that. Yeah. Everybody's just reeling from it and going through waves of guilt and uh, shock and denial. And there's even uh, really, you know, confusing emotions that make you feel extra guilty, like relief at times um, and embarrassment. Yeah, um, that shame. That survivor's yeah. guilt, the shame, and anger, so much anger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's it's good to just just say what happened. Um, so this, I'll just never forget this day. It's just really, of, of course, stands out in my mind a lot and is, is seared into my memory. But part of what makes it stand out so much is because I remember, it's almost like before this happened, before I knew what had happened, the, that morning really uh, was a memorable morning. I remember so clearly I was living in California. I was working on a construction site, living in this camping trailer on a beautiful piece of property. And I remember it was, it was a Sunday morning. I had the day off. I woke up, I think it was like, I think it was end of January or February. But it was a really warm, beautiful day in <clears throat> Sacramento area. Sun was shining, birds were chirping. I was like sipping my coffee. And I, I just remember thinking that morning, like how beautiful of a day it was and how good I felt. And it's just like, man, life's good. And I was trying to think about what I should do with the day and how should I enjoy this? And um, I received a call from my sister and she was just, she's kind of upset. She had just had a like a argument with with our little brother just there was like some family drama at the house and it was one of the the few opportunities that i i had to like have a good conversation with my sister like that we didn't talk that much um so i you know it's one of the rare opportunities where i just got to be kind of the consoling big brother and <clears throat> say oh it's okay you know you know like family fights happen it's gonna be fine and I was telling her, it's like, you know, he's, he's just going through this, this phase. He's 14 years old. I was saying when he's an adult and we're all in our twenties uh, and thirties, we're all going to be best friends. You guys aren't going to have this, like, you know, the same kind of rivalry and difficulty getting along. Yeah. And he was just, he was a tough kid. Like I was, honestly, I think he took after me a lot. Uh, I was kind of a, a clown. I liked to goof off. And I think he looked up to me and, and emulated me a little bit in that way. He was kind of a goof and a troublemaker. <laughs> uh, so I felt like that was partly my fault, uh, setting the, not always the best example, but, um, yeah, he he was uh he was kind of hard to handle and just being the youngest of six uh siblings is tough that's rough yeah yeah, yeah. being the baby uh so i had this great conversation with my sister it's like all right well have a good day i love you and then back to this beautiful morning um just just like enjoying it and then a short while later my mom called me just so distraught she says eli shot himself and uh, can you come? Yeah, which was probably uh, just the single most painful thing I've ever heard. Um, most 
single most painful moment of my whole life. And this was 10 years ago, and I've talked about it many times since, you know, just sort of saying what happened, but, uh, you know, telling, telling the story and like really going, going back to that day, it's, uh, like, I, I can't, I'll not, I don't think I'll ever be able to relive that experience without being, being really affected by it. I just remember I collapsed on the floor, just my legs completely gave out, you know, I, yeah. and uh, my mom, she was just giving me the news. She had to go. She was dealing with all kinds of things. The police were there, of course. There was a house full of people. She had to go, and I was, uh, then I, she hung up, and I was just there alone, like sobbing on the floor. For, I don't know how long. And, uh, and uh, just remember how strange it was to still be in that, in that morning, that beautiful morning with the, the golden glowing sun coming through the windows and the birds and the flowers, it just was like, seemed so strange to me. What a, what a horrific thing had happened and yet how beautiful the day was. It was really bizarre. And uh, anyway. <sighs> That's heavy, Warren. Yeah. That's heavy. So it was kind of a, you know, as a result of this family fight that had happened, my brother just was having a bad day. And there was a, my, my stepdad at the time, he had a 22 rifle that he kept in the garage, but no ammunition. And really, really strange, actually. Uh, apparently, my brother Eli had found a bullet somewhere, like out in just the street or somewhere, like, and he, you know, picked it up and just thought it was cool and kept it as like a souvenir. And so otherwise, you know, the gun, I'm sure would have been locked up, but there was no ammo in the house. He never used it. It was like a family heirloom. Yeah. So a Eli type thing. Yeah, yeah. Eli had found one bullet and in this moment of distress, he, he just, you know, made a mistake. I, I don't think he, he realized what he was doing. I'm, I'm sure of it. You know, I can. I feel like I've been there before. I know that feeling of, especially being a teenager, yeah. I, I had plenty of uh, suicidal thoughts um, at that age, maybe more so when I was like 15, 16, but it's like, man, I, I get it. Know what he was going through. And it was just, just a rash decision. I don't think he meant to do it, but anyway, um, yeah, the rest of the story, you know, is just made my way to, to Utah where my family was for the funeral and, Ended up staying, hanging out for a week and a half, two weeks maybe, just to just to be home with people, and and I remember not being able to to think about anything else that whole time. I just like life lost you. all of its appeal. Yeah. There was I couldn't think of anything yeah. to do with my time. Just everything felt just empty, and uh, it was a lot of just like sitting around and thinking and crying and moping and trying to console other people. Um, but anyway, yeah, the, uh, the result of that is that I felt like that broke my heart wide open and made me receptive to, to so many 
feelings that I had never felt before and, and just gave me this level of empathy that and, and love that I didn't even know was possible. And, uh, you know, I never really cried when I was, uh, when I was like younger or in, in my twenties, I didn't have a reason to, nothing ever moved me. Um, and now everything moves me and everything makes me cry. And I just feel like so much empathy for, for other people. And it's all because of him and, and having lost him. And uh, I just, the only way I, I was able to kind of move on from that and just go forward with my life, is, and especially feeling as guilty as I did, because for a, a number of reasons, I just felt like I, I wasn't there for him in a lot of ways. I should have been. I wasn't the best brother. Um, there were, of course, you know, a few times where I kind of picked on him or I was a little bit of a bully or I said sure. some unkind yeah. words and gosh, that's just, that really weighs on you. Yeah. I mean, you know, my sister too, everybody, everybody can recall the times when they were unkind yeah. and feel responsible. Um, and so the only way that I could forgive myself and move on and figure out like a productive way forward with my life was to just commit to doing better and it's like man I gotta I gotta make the most of my life somehow and first of all for myself I gotta like follow my heart and chase my dreams like yeah. like there's you know like you owe it to him like, right to exactly. make something to make something of of that tragedy that loss is to make yeah. something beautiful exactly yep. yeah and to, to honor his memory and to make up for it make up for the loss of his light in the world because he would have been such a good person done so much good for other people mm. so it's just i felt like doubly responsible and like man i gotta i gotta really step it up and and be a better person for for him to, to make up for his loss and so yeah that that's what uh, I, I had some interest in service work and things before that but it was really after that that made me that kind of led me down this path of feeling like man this is this is what i want to do with my life yeah um everything else just suddenly seemed so so meaningless like yeah. why pursue money and wealth that doesn't seem like a, the a, the best thing to to chase oh, in life I, uh, I totally agree with you on that i'm i'm all about experience over wealth you know yeah. adventures and journeys yeah that's right. So it just, you know, and, and having that closeness to death makes you realize like, oh, well, when the time comes when I'm on my own deathbed or the end is, is nigh, like, yeah, the whatever material things you have are going to feel so, so meaningless. I, and yes. all that will matter are the relationships you made and, and the love that you, you had and that you, you spread. And so, yeah, uh, his death gave my life a lot of meaning. And um, so in that weird way, I'm, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. That, I, I resonate with that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's taking, it's ripping all of the, the calluses and things that we tried to build up as, as kids and resiliency. And when something like that happens, you start over and, and rebuilding your life and figuring out who you are without this person. And and trying to make up for the make up for the life that they're not no longer able to live and seeing the world for them through your eyes and just making an impact i think speaks so much more than what's in my bank account at the end of the day 
you know, and, and there's beauty in that. There's also pain, you know, in that um, they're not here to see it. Oh, I, I, I feel, I feel like he is. That was another uh, thing that it did to me was opened me back up to uh, spirituality. I've been closed off little bit arrogant really for much of my 20s just felt like I, I didn't need religion didn't need God um, and and after that I felt like well like why why turn away from the possibility that there is some sort of life after death like sure. now I, I sure hope there is because I want to see him again yeah and I, I want to feel like he's he's with me still and, and I feel like I do feel his his presence in my life all the time so I, I do, I do feel, I feel the same way. Um, you know, uh, people laugh at me a little bit because a part of my healing journey was seeking out psychic mediums. And I know people like kind of, you know, balk at that, but I've had some really intimate, vulnerable conversations with quite a few um, uh, psychic mediums that were able to convey things that and I, and I know it's, it's it's happenstance to say but like they they knew things that nobody knew you know my husband and I had a very um unique way of saying he wasn't into PDA right but we had a very unique way of 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 saying goodbye to each other in public and one um psychic medium in particular knew it and like like showed you like there was no way outside my family like it's not on social media you can't google how amanda and brian mcintosh said goodbye to each other you know what i mean and uh so that gave kind of some some comfort and um my birthday was just recently and even the night of my birthday one of the psychic mediums that i connected with the most she had reached out to me and said hey somebody's here with a ladybug which was uh, which is my sign from my husband and wanted to let you know that they're with you and that they love you. And so, although I'm not religious, um, there's, you know, there's some religious trauma there from my youth, but I do feel spiritually that there is a presence of, of our loved ones, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you can cut yeah. that if you need to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, me too. That's good. <sighs> thank you for being vulnerable and sharing the story of, of your brother. That's, it's extremely hard to walk yourself back through that and have every, any other day, could you recall how beautiful of a day it was or, you know, the whole, you know, taking in the whole landscape of it all. But when you get news like that, instantly all of those details are forever ingrained and so to walk it back and relive those and put yourself back in that moment of when you first heard of his passing it's extremely hard and i appreciate you sharing that with me and i now i feel you know closer to him closer to you knowing that you know he meant so much to you obviously your yeah. whole family was was devastated by his loss and so it is a loss to to the world. Yeah.
which is another another kind of a silver lining is I think it brought our whole family a lot closer together and we've we're really strong to this day because of that yeah all right so let's talk about something else okay <laughs> well it's more more of the same but um, I you you'd mentioned a little while ago the statistic that carbon and emery counties have the highest suicide rights suicide rates in the state I had no idea makes sense I was aware of our our uh, having the highest rates of opioid prescriptions uh, but I did look at a ETV news article from last year in which you said you'd shared at a meeting that Utah is no longer sixth in the nation for suicide that number I guess in 2022 or the year before drops and the state was at that point in ninth place so this is a very sad competition to be taking any place in, but it's great news that things have been improving in Utah. But why were we sixth to begin with? How is it that this state was and still is so close to having the highest suicide rates yeah. in the nation? Yeah. And then uh, maybe we can just focus on that first, and then and then I'll ask after that we can focus on Carbon and, Carbon and Emory County okay. and what's happening locally. There are. Are, are, are many uh, theories as to why Utah ranks really high in, in suicide ranks uh, suicide rates uh, overall. Um, yes, we have dropped out of the uh, preliminary data right now is that we're 14th in the nation. However, um, uh, we won't stay out of the top 10. I'll just say that. Since like 1999, we've been in the top 10 states. Many th theories behind that, uh, a lot of it has to do with our elevation, um, access to lethal means. You know, in, in Utah, we are, for the majority, not, not just one gun per homeowner, but multiple guns, because we're hunters and, and uh, believe in our Second Amendment rights. Uh, so access to means, our elevation, uh, they are doing studies on, um, they're doing, they're right now at the, at the Utah state medical examiner's office, they're actually conducting post-mortem suicide research to try and see if they can find a DNA or a protein within, um, our bodies post-mortem of somebody who has died by suicide that maybe could potentially be uh, detectable through something as easy as a blood test later in life, right? But all of these things have derived from the fact that we are losing more and more people. Now it could could mean because we have a higher population, especially you know in Salt Lake, we have a, a dense population of people. So of course it would make sense, quote unquote, to, to lose people to suicide. But um, I think at the heart of things, in the state of Utah, over 50% of our deaths are are by firearm, right? And that that says a lot. Economy always plays a role into it, especially as we get down into the Carbon Amarine Grand areas, our, our economy and, and coal mines and things uh, play a role in that. Stigma is huge. Um, in the latest CDC released data, it's not truly official, but from what it looks like is we are moved back down into the top 10. And so there's a lot of looking into post COVID because when we, when, when COVID happened, 
rates across the board went down. Uh, and they, they do trend that way when you think of um, Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, these big massive events that take place where there's an external factor for us to be focusing on and we go into this survival mode outside of these natural disasters or national disasters, our suicide rates come down. But as we are moving through COVID and outside of COVID, we are seeing an increase across, across the United States in our suicide rates. So what that means is that, yes, we're higher, but that could just mean that suicide rates in Nevada, Wyoming, Colorado are reportedly down, right? It's this juggle back and forth of, of where we sit in comparison to the other states around us. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's hopeful. And I'd like to think that the prevention efforts that the state of Utah has put into place um, uh, are, are, we can see those results. Um, such as the the Live on Utah suicide prevention campaign that is that is live and doing well, um, that was that was money matched from Huntsman's and the governor to put forth a statewide suicide prevention campaign, um, and and the what came out of that was the Live on Playbook, which is accessible on Instagram, right? Um, so that more people are aware and and can be prepared for suicidal crises. Um, in our area, you know, using the funding that uh, we've we've been grant we've been granted through the Live On campaign to put more um, ammo boxes and gun cases into the community and talk about it on the radio and have podcast situations I, I, I like this is um, I think been beneficial and over time is going to lessen our suicide rates. Um, having the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention be actively involved in our community, I think has has done um, a good deal of work, not just in our community, but but statewide, right? Because they're from north to south, east to west. So we're aware of the numbers, we see the rates, we know what works, we know what doesn't work, and it's a matter of getting the funding to push more of what is working so that we can stay out of that top 10. Got it. That was a lot. That's that's what this is for. Okay. I want to like that's what I love about podcasts. You can just take as much time as you want to really get into the meat of it. Whereas with newspaper articles or radio sound bites, it's just you can only scratch the surface. Exactly. So I want you to go as as deep as possible. And I, you know, this is for for me. I really want to understand this as best I can. And I think a lot of other people will will appreciate this too. So. Don't hold back. We got all the time you want to take, uh, but that that gives me a, a number of other questions. So first of all, do you know why the elevation factors in? Yeah. So I don't. I I'd have to find the article, but there was research done not that long ago that stated that the higher in elevation you are, the like the slower the synapses in your brain. And so your your frontal lobe, which is in charge of your impulse control and your decision making that your thought processes are slowed down and you're more likely to engage in an impulsive act. And uh, I believe I'd have to find the article and, and I'll find it and, and send it to you. But it was something like, um, you know, for however many thousands of feet, tens of thousands of feet you are above sea level, I think it's thousands of, of feet above sea level, um, is plays a direct role in your how much oxygen is getting to your brain and and the the 
pathways are, you know, um, narrowed uh, because of lack of oxygen. And so if you're somebody that works in higher elevation, like our coal miners, for instance, we, we talk about this with our coal miners, it's, you know, they're quote unquote underground, but they're really at high elevations when they're working underground. And so it can take them up to 30 minutes to an hour for that regulation in their oxygen to re replenish the what's in their brain. And so if you leave work as a coal miner, if you leave work ticked off at your boss because of your shift boss or whatever. And then you walk in the door and your significant other is in your face about not being home and the baby needs this. And, you know, just a hypothetical situation. You're looking at a very uh, high risk situation that could end very severely. And when we take a look at the statistics in Carbon Emory and Grand Counties and just the just the surface level of, of what we see, the people that we are losing to suicide do fall into that coal miner um, category, our construction workers, where they're trying to navigate this very physically demanding job while being at different elevations at all the time, right? And so that's fascinating. We're, we're actually seeing a trend more so toward our elderly community that we're losing to suicide. And that's new to us within the last three or four years. Um, yes, across the, the state, we're seeing that, but more so in Carbon, Emory, and Grand Counties. And so it's trying to revamp what we're already working on for these younger generations, the 20s and 30s, and even into the 40s a little bit, and, and the way that we um, provide prevention services to those. How do we cater those now to an elderly generation that aren't as active on social media, that are not leaving their homes, that have very little social interaction, if any, to bring those numbers down. And, uh, you know, we, we see that, we, I know that I kind of trailed off of that, that, uh, elevation topic, but it's all, it's all very fascinating in the, in our area, carbon, Emory and grant to see what trends, um, follow the, the state average and the national average, um, and then put the, the elevation into play with those conversations as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you went exactly where I wanted to, to go with the next question. Just, just reading your mind. Yeah, figuring out, <laughs> wanting to understand what's happening here locally. Why, why are we unique? Um, you know, what's the relationship with the, the coal mining industry or the, the mining and, and the labor industries in general? Yeah. Um, but speaking of elderly folks, yeah, this was, so when I was preparing for this and thinking about what I wanted to talk about. This was the second thing that I thought was like, oh, my, this might make me cry <laughs> I talk about this, but, uh, and I, I don't want to, um, I want to respect this person's privacy and their anonymity, but I think it's, again, it's just important to talk about. So, uh, I don't think they would mind if I shared them being anonymous, but a friend of mine who is a member of our community who was elderly and lives alone, I was visiting with them recently and they were telling me that they've been feeling uh, depressed lately, basically. Part of it is because they're having trouble remembering words, mm. is what they were saying now, and they're worried that they're they're experiencing cognitive decline and and they're afraid of what this is going to look like for them in the coming years. And they told me that they were having suicidal thoughts and con just actively considering maybe intentionally ending their life. <sighs> and it just, 
I, I, when they were telling me all this and then went into, you know, explaining some other things, I, I just broke down in tears and just like hugging them and saying like, please don't go. Like, I love you so much. Yeah. Like, I want you to stay around well longer. And, um, but I think you're right. It's just, uh, yeah, we need to have some some custom solutions and and strategies for how do we how do we help these older folks who are offline and living mm-hmm. alone and isolated and yeah. some of them don't even really have the ability to to drive and get around on their own. Um, another one of my elderly neighbors uh, locally is is legally blind. They can't even drive, so they're totally dependent, and they also live alone. So. Yeah. They don't get out much, and they're dependent on other other people for transportation. And uh, because they're offline, and sometimes maybe don't even have family locally, it's, they're just kind of invisible. Uh, so, yeah, and almost forgotten. As yeah, if, you know, yeah. It's it's is anybody even going to notice if I'm gone? Type situation, and I I totally totally know where you're coming from and, and feeling that empathy toward um, th- this population because we want to save them all. We want, we want to make sure that they are wrapped in, in love and, and uh, care. Um, and so that does pose, how do we get to them? How do we communicate with them so that they feel connected um, and that they feel supported? Um, and that's something that I would love to work with you on, you know, in identifying these, these, these neighbors, um, you know, with their permission, of course, to make sure that they are being provided the best services so that their life is quality over quantity and, um, that they want to stay. Right. And we, we see a lot of, um, it's so sad to say, and I hate to even say it, but if if mental health and suicide prevention was given the funding that our opioid crisis gets and i'm not taking anything away from the opioid crisis please don't misunderstand but if we had the funding the way that that public health issue had funding we could create services better sustainable services of outreach for this this population, this demographic of, of, of people, these older, older generation have so much life still to give, but because of, uh, you know, like your neighbor, your neighbor who's blind, that's, that's a, that's a a social determinant of health, right? If she's not able to come into town to participate at the senior center or even get reliable transportation to get to a doctor's appointment where they can have a social interaction and, and, uh, you know, all of that stuff is just that diversity, equality, and inclusion. If we could have the money to build that, the amount of lives that we could save, you know, would 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 magnify. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And there's a a huge workforce nationwide focused on the opioid epidemic, and again not taking anything away from that but in my eyes and in my community our community 
they are one in the same. Our people in substance use, you can't tell me that they haven't thought about ending their lives at one point or another. Maybe they haven't, but of the ones that I know, they have. And somebody who is having suicidal ideation and having those, those, those thoughts are looking for an escape just short of ending their lives. And so um, turning to um, drugs, uh, uh, substances, substances is an attractive alternative for that escapism. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But they are very strict on how to use those funds that prevent the mental health side of it from really benefiting as as well. Um, but again, if we had the funding to create to customize programs for our our elderly um, community, we would see those numbers decrease too. I'd love to talk a little bit more about some specific recommendations that you might have in some of these areas. So for starters, with firearms, uh, like you said, we have really strong hunting culture. Mm-hmm. Most people are very supportive of the, the Second Amendment rights to, to bear arms. Mm-hmm. It's not, doesn't seem like, you know, something where we want to try to take guns away from people no, or no, no, out of no. their homes. No. It's like, People, people are going to have guns no matter what. Yes. But yeah. what would you recommend for increasing the, the safety of, of having guns in the home or, um, yeah, interventions for, for people who, you know, it's not, some, sometimes it's not that you got to keep the children, say, from accessing a parent's gun, but the parent themselves is the one at risk. So what could we do to intervene there? Yeah, um, you know, with the the Southeast Utah Health Department and the Hope Squad of Carbon Emory Grand Counties, we kind of we fall under the the health department's umbrella, right? And so we are not advocate advocates for gun control whatsoever. Most of us are gun owners, but we are advocates for gun safety. And um, anybody within a home is at risk, in spite of their age if they are not properly stored and education um, about the repercussions of, of misuse of a firearm. And we are, as a state, doing everything we can um, to push out safety measures to our, our gun suppliers. Um, Representative Steve Elison is a huge proponent for gun safety and has submitted um, a number of bills talking about gun stores giving out gun locks for free with with a purchase of every firearm right and that's great we love that um, there was a there was a, a grant that um, representative Elison build um, that, when somebody purchased a firearm in the state of Utah, they could go through a rebate process. If they bought a, a, a safe, that they could go through this rebate process where the state of Utah would actually pay them to utilize a, a gun case. Um, and that got reworked um, just in the last couple of years to where they are sending that rebate, quote unquote, we rebate money directly to the health departments to put um, means restriction um, in, in place. So for instance, for Carbon Emory and Grand Counties, 
um, we were granted this money and I have spent tens of thousands of dollars in gun cases and ammo boxes and gun locks and gun socks in an effort to just get them in the hands of our community um, and with them being free that incentive to use them in the home um, and 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 I have those and give those out uh, when I can um, I think that in order for our gun rates to go down uh, our, our suicide gun rates to go down, there has to be a different um, approach to talking to our gun owners about suicide. And that when somebody is going through a suicidal crisis, they are going to choose the means in which they are most comfortable with. And if you're a hunter or a sportsman of, of sorts and you're comfortable with a firearm, that's the modality that you're most likely going to choose. Nurses, choose medications. Women choose other, other means, you know, to, to, um, proceed with their plans to, to intentionally hurt themselves. We are seeing an increase in women involved firearm usage and fire and suicide deaths, but the majority of them are men. They all probably always will be. So in teaching, and I know that like in the, the concealed weapons courses, they have instituted a suicide prevention module, but it's not enough. I, I feel like if we could make the, the gun ownership community understand that it's not about taking away your rights, it's just making sure that your rights are, are safe and that they're locked away and um, protected for the whole family, right? Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yep. Um, so, so if we could just change the narrative to where it's not, we're trying, we're not trying to control you. We're trying to protect you because we love you and we want you to be able to um, participate in these activities that you find joy in, you know, mm -hmm. more so than restrict, restrict, restrict. In some communities, not in ours, for one reason or another, um, they have the safe harbor law. And what that is, uh, is if, if, you know, you, you're in a relationship with somebody and are fearful, fearful that they are going to hurt themselves with the firearms in your home. You can uh, bequeath them temporarily to a local uh, police department. They will hold on to them, no questions asked. There's no registration process or anything. It's a temporary hold mm -hmm. until that person has made it through their suicidal crisis. And if we could initiate something like even like that, but as a gun owner, people have hard times relinquishing their guns, even if it's temporary for fear of not getting them back or, you know, them falling into the wrong hands or whatever, whatever. So again, it's about education and, and reiterating a more positive narrative on what we're trying to do. That's great to know that last, that last, uh, option. So, Anyone locally, if they're concerned about a, a friend who has owns guns, they could ask if they could take their gun for them to the police station. Uh, we don't do that in our community. Oh, you're saying not yeah, yet. but in other communities up, uh, you know, up north, there are places that you can take them. In mm -hmm. fact, clear up in Logan, this is a really fascinating story. Clear up in Logan, there's a coffee shop that is owned by a veteran, and he has opened up. Uh, in the back of his coffee shop, a, a safe harbor hmm. place for people to store guns um, free of charge. 
um, and and people can come and reclaim them whenever they want, you know, but it it's a place, a safe space to hold firearms while somebody is going through through that suicidal crisis. And yeah. it, it would be great, great to have that. But with that comes great responsibility, too. And and that takes funding and personnel to, to maintain. Yeah. Is there a a place locally where that might be an option in the coming years or is there a reason why we can't do it at our local police department? Um, it's something that I have um, briefly mentioned to our, our county sheriff um, and didn't really get, and, and I'm not speaking ill of, of our sheriff, I, I adore him, um, didn't get a really concrete answer other than that type of service would again require, it would require space to hold um, the firearms and the personnel to maintain it and, and the FT, the, the people to keep it, keep the records on it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, so I'm not just any Joe Blow walking in off the street and saying, oh, hey, you have my gun. Can I get it back? You know, so there's a documentation process, but not a registration process. And I don't know how to clarify that because people are so worried that, excuse me, uh, that, that, by a registration process that you're going to show up in some database that says that you own a b and c as a gun it's not not about that it's mm -hmm. you've turned in a 30 out six you've turned in a, a a shotgun blah 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 and now we have a tag on it to make sure that it's yours when you when you're ready for it yeah so well it's good just to know that that is an option in some places and that if more people are aware of that and start talking more about it maybe uh someone will take it upon themselves to figure out how we can get that done locally. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, so I have a few more questions about some strategies and interventions, but I remembered a, an earlier question that I had that I'd forgotten, which is you were talking about, you mentioned something having to do with uh, like natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina in the wake of which suicide mm -hmm. rates go down. Is mm -hmm. that what you were saying? Yeah, yeah, isn't that funny? Um, so when, when natural disasters or, or national disasters uh, such as 9-11 and, and Katrina, um, uh, COVID, you know, something that affects a mass number of people, we do see a decrease in our suicidal, um, our, our suicides nationwide. Um, and I don't, I couldn't tell you the science behind it other than when something of that magnitude is externally happening and the amount of resources and highlighting of, 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 I guess, highlighting other resources, then we tend to um, pull out of our depressive state um, and, and, and are more outward with getting help, self-help seeking behavior increases. Our, the, the, the calls to 988 increase, uh, which is our, the suicide prevention and crisis line, um, self-help seeking behaviors become more increase during natural disasters it's you know which which one is better having a natural disaster or having lower suicide rates you yeah know? that is so fascinating though yeah. and i think it makes a lot of sense uh and i feel like there's there's something we can learn from that and to implement into to more strategies I can't remember the details of this. Uh, I'm going to try to recall, but just at some some point, I had read about some some study, some research that was done on like mental health in general, or suicide, or like attitudes uh, in in uh, 
communities or countries that had experienced wartime. Mm -hmm. And they had found that people tended to have like fond memories of wartime in a way because it was like when they were all huddled together in some underground bunker and surviving off of rations, it was this time of like togetherness yeah. and and connectivity of, 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 that yeah, they exactly and of, of needing to find hope and it yeah. motivated people to you know find humor in the situation to try to like make people smile and yeah. people you know everybody became very generous and giving and so it's the effect that horrible things and natural disasters and war has on people that can actually Im improve their, their well mental being, health and yeah. well-being in the short term. So I wonder, like, okay, well, is there a way that knowing that, can we take advantage of that fact? And so in the years since I learned about that study or whatever it was, it's been on my mind and I feel like, you know, what, what are our crises, uh, what are we facing that we could kind of use as the catalyst for um, trying to increase our togetherness and yeah. uh, interdependence? And I think that's maybe like one of the opportunities that we have here locally and in all of rural Utah, these communities that are are still trying to recover from economic hardship and mm -hmm. depression. Um, where we, we've got these substance use problems. It's like to just acknowledge and become aware of the fact that we are in crisis and yeah. we need all hands on deck. Right. And it requires everyone getting involved and participating in this uh, could, could actually be really helpful. What do you think? I know. I love that idea. I really, I reflect back the two most major events in, in my lifetime that I remember fully is 9-11 and how the community as a whole really did come together and they were looking out for their fellow man. And we had a common goal of, of you know, defeating the enemy and we were looking out for our neighbors and we were checking in on our, our loved ones and going to the extreme, you know, donating blood and donating food and donating this. And even COVID, I saw a little bit of that too, and that we were so worried about our neighbors for once and, and didn't want to get them sick and didn't want to expose them. And we wanted to make sure that uh, we were checking in more on people's mental health. And even though we were quarantining, we weren't, we weren't, um, we were still being socialized with people. Um, and, and if only we could bottle that up, that energy, and we see it, we see it in our rural communities, or in, I mean, when, when somebody in our community really is in need we show up we show up and we show out every time um it, it may not be these grand grand doy grand grand gestures but in little ways we're showing up whether it be monetary or um extra blankets or or you know um donating time to build people's houses you know we are trying to put forth a, a, a goodwill into this world because we see how negative it is and we don't want to live like that anymore. So how do we bottle up that energy and maximize it to its to its full be full benefits, you know? Yeah. That's idealistic maybe of me. No, I don't think so. I wanted to acknowledge that as well uh that I, I am like you seeing this happening all around us. I I think that that, that is happening. People are responding to these crises and are waking up and getting really energized and motivated to do something. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's just easy if you're not really paying attention, maybe you don't read the newspaper, you're not on social media, you know, if you're if you're kind of a homebody, it'd be easy to to not be aware of all of that is good. happening, especially yeah. because in rural areas everybody's so spread out. It's yeah. it's not that that visible or obvious, but uh, I'm I'm blown away by how many people are out there trying to make a difference and and how much is is happening. It's really inspiring and exciting, and I think we actually have a ton of momentum. And I guess so. My my hope and for the future and the call to action is just like, yeah, for for anybody who's still kind of sitting on the sidelines, and I think for a lot of them it's probably just because of lack of awareness. And mm-hmm. but and then also people who just have their hands full, like raising kids, working a full time job, like it's not really, you know, they're, they're, they're busy. It's not that they're not doing enough. I, um, so I don't expect those, those people. It's like, if you're taking care of your family, that's enough. That's enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Because but, you didn't even get me started on protective factors for our youth and, and going into, you know, what's going to create a healthier, a long, the longevity of well mental health services, you know, and it starts at home. So if you are a parent and you're, you're raising your kids, you know, kudos to you because that's, yeah. that's, it's so impactful on, on our youth to have parents in the home and active in their lives. Yeah. But I think for anybody else who has free time and is feeling at all bored, there's so many, so many <laughs> ways to get involved. Uh, you know, I think in, in the face of, of this and what you can experience in comparison, like video games and television seems kind of boring. I mean, I do that too. Like I, like I like to veg out and chill and watch my favorite shows, but, uh, (laughs) you know, to, to a point, but, um, it's, it's really, really fun to, to get out and volunteer and do things and socialize, meet so many people. And, uh, there's, there's a lot going on here. Um, so let's see, I wanted to ask back to the conversation about possible solutions, interventions, I'm wondering if you have any theories on uh, what we could do to kind of address the root of some of these problems. Like, mm. for example, when I think about um, you know these these middle-aged men who wor- are working in the coal mines and have you know are comfortable using a firearm, um, it's like, well, you know, the interventions for like, I mean. I think we got to try to tackle it at, at every stage and mm-hmm. level. So, mm-hmm. like, it's awesome that the, the gun socks and safes, but that's like after that's the last opportunity to intervene yeah. when somebody has basically decided that they're going to attempt to end their life. So, I'm wondering, like, if we go way back down the the chain, you know, what are some of the maybe earlier interventions mm. that could be done to prevent things from ever escalating to that point because I have a few thoughts and theories and ideas so when you talk about funding and like where where should we invest mm-hmm. uh, because ideally and this is well tricky because for uh, you know nonprofits that it's like you exist to uh, try to solve a problem and if you solve the problem then then you're out of a job right uh, but <laughs> I would I would imagine that you would love for nothing more than to have to retire the Hope Squad because it's no longer a that would be and, the ultimate goal. Yeah, yeah that'd so, be the dream for sure. So speaking of funding and investments, yeah. uh, you know, there's that's the more kind of obvious, like uh, you know, f- funding to for the the crisis point. But what about um, earlier interventions? Yeah, 
So we have a saying uh, that prevention is prevention is prevention. And at any stage of life, it is never too late to adopt prevention strategies um, at the household level, the community level, state level, and beyond. And I think one of the main focuses that um, I have shifted into recently is getting those prevention messages to our youth. Our, our kids, and I say kids in the most generic term, right? In that everybody's their own in, individual person with their own ideals and own goals for their lives. But what I have seen over the course of the last well, since, since I've started doing this job, is our youth, I, I, hate to, I hate to say it this way, but they're woke, <laughs> right? Um, they see the generational traumas and the negativity, bad behavioral, learned behavior, learned coping mechanisms that don't work and are not serving anybody well. And, and I'm so appreciative of that. I'm so happy for that, but it takes a, a, an extreme amount of, of resources to make sure that that trend continues because the, these students now are eventually going to be adults, right? And they're eventually going to be an older generation, working class, middle class, all of that stuff. Um, it all changes at the school level, at the elementary level, in the home, in the school, in the community. We need to be having conversations with them and giving them the tools that they need to adequately express themselves and, and creating safe spaces for those expressions to be had in identifying their, their emotions and um, finding healthy mechanisms to move through that with resiliency and determination and tenacity. Um, without, without the fear of being ridiculed or punished, um, or made to feel less than, uh, with the, with the stigma attached to that. And as they, as they are leading their, their, their adult lives, they can break some of these, um, these generational tactics, you know, I don't know about you. Um, I love my parents. Don't, don't get me wrong, but I was spanked as a child and I can see how that form of discipline hasn't served me as an adult. If anything, it's, it's one of my weakest traits in that that's my anger, right? That's where, where I have to curtail the damage that it did to me so that I don't inflict it on my own. Right. Um, and with that comes, and this is such a roundabout way of getting to the point, all of that prevention education can be easily accessed through the use of our community resources in the CARE Coalition, our Communities That Care Coalition, where we receive funding to put prevention, um, proactive, um, um, excuse me, um, positive childhood experiences in the paths of parents, new parents, old parents, seasoned parents to incorporate into their, their child raising experience. Right. And those are those, those ACEs or the effect, um, oh gosh, 
adverse childhood experiences, sorry, you know, that we're trying to steer away from and replacing those with those positive childhood experiences. The more we can educate that those generations. I'm not saying that the older generations that are here now are a lost cause. I would never say that. Um, but there has to be a willingness on that side of the fence to want to be better and want to do better too. And until they are receptive to that, uh, intervention is only going to happen on a at-need basis where the gun locks come in, the, the, the gun cases come in. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Whereas if we can start now and push uh you know those positive childhood experiences into the hands of the parents and into the hands and minds of the, of the kids it's going to take some time but eventually i would i i i'm hopeful that we will see a completely different way of of approaching life and even even with our teachers getting their teaching degrees there's such an emphasis so much more now through their their classroom management um, classes and whatnot to address mental health um, and and being required as a teacher to have one hour of suicide prevention training every time they recertify to to be a teacher they are seeing a shift at the at the teaching level too of of the need for that unfortunate that our teachers have to take on multiple roles in the classroom, but how fortunate that they have somebody who's trained that can recognize the warning signs and escalate it to the powers that be, right? So that's at the home level and at the school level, which which translates to our community level, and that if they have buy-in to their community and they are surrounded by adults that have invested in them and want the best for them, the more likely it is that they're going to participate in the community and building the community up, which only makes us better as a state and and as a country right Mm -hmm. it truly comes down to those those elementary lessons of being kind and not bullying and loving one another and and accepting each other for our differences and celebrating those differences and making sure that everybody has the same access to care um, whether that be physical or mental health and that they have they have positive influences in their life to shape a good childhood to move forward in creating change. Yeah, you just made me think of uh, another aspect of, of um, the cost of suicide and like basically why it's so worth investing in prevention because it's really hard to measure, but if you know if you could attempt to measure it, what would the economic cost of suicide be yeah so american foundation of suicide prevention when they put out their state facts every year uh, they didn't this year because cdc was late to get us 2022 numbers but every time they release a state facts sheet that tells us where we're at how many and where are um where we're losing um people they do like top three like youth and middle class or not middle class excuse me middle aged and, and elderly they put the potential life expectancy lost and you can't put you can't put a dollar on that you know how how do you measure you know how do you measure somebody's uh uh money Mm -hmm. but but years we can quantify years and in the potential life lost you know Mm -hmm. 
if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And I mean, if this were damage done by one person to another and this went to court, I mean, you're going to end up settling for millions of dollars because yeah. that's what people's lives and time is worth. Absolutely. Uh, so any single life is is yeah easily worth millions of dollars or more. You never know. I mean, especially having no idea what somebody's potential is uh, for, for like young people. They could right. be... The, the next person to go and cure, cure, cancer. cure cancer or Absolutely. whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, also the fallout, if, you know, on average you said like 135 people are mm -hmm. directly affected by suicide and they all miss two weeks of work because they're so distraught. Yeah. It's like, there's, there's a cost to that too. Absolutely. So it's a ripple effect. Yeah. It really is. I mean, I think it's kind of helpful to put it in those terms too, because, you know, we don't want to risk coming across as like, oh, these just like bleeding heart liberals and there's, you know, just have this soft spot for people. But the reality is like, we got to live on a budget and we can't, you know, there's not enough money to go around all I these know. programs. I, it's yeah. like, well, uh, all right, let's put it in dollar amounts. Like yeah. suicide is a freaking expensive. Yes. It's like it costs. For not just the person <laughs> that we lose to suicide, but this, the, these people, 800 million people are bereaved by suicide every year. 800 mm. million people. That's insane. When the state of Utah, when we're losing upwards of 700, 800 people a year to suicide, times that by 135, that's a lot of people that are now being affected and are at a higher risk of ending their lives because their loved one did, right? That was one of the very first statistics that I had heard when going into the Hope Squad events was that because I had lost my husband to suicide, because my daughter had lost her dad to suicide, we were automatically at a 30% higher risk of ending our lives simply because our loved one did. Whether that be a learned coping mechanism or or just being um, uh, exposed to that quote unquote way out that does not sit well with me so you're talking about let's just say 800 people in the state of utah losing their lives to suicide timesing that by 135 i don't math but it sounds like a lot in my head and then and then now every single one of those people are at a 30 percent higher risk our our job would never be done yeah you know yeah oh, wow it's heavy and there's so many days where I love my, I love my work. I love the community that I serve. I love what I do. Um, but it, it's also very, it can be exhausting because we focus so much on how many people we're losing to suicide. I know how many people Carbon Emory and Grand Counties has lost to suicide this year at any given moment. And that's heavy because I don't know how many lives I have potentially saved with the pre prevention efforts. And so to focus on the, the lives that we have lost, you feel each and every single one of them and that, what am I doing? How are we failing them? How can we be better? You know, um, and, and, but you can't ask them where we missed the mark. Where did we fail? You know, mm -hmm. and, and that's, it's frustrating. It's heavy. Yeah. That's such a good point, though. That's such a great way to look at it in terms of lives saved, which we mm -hmm. will never know. Mm -hmm. We'll never know who you personally impacted. And had you not been there, they may have taken their life. Um, so I think it's important for people to just keep in mind that if you are making an effort uh, to, to look out for people and get involved in your community and serve, 
that you are saving lives. Yeah. And you just, you're never going to You'll know never who, know it. Yeah. But you're literally saving lives. And that's a, it's a good feeling. Uh, it's not, it's not for nothing. Uh, even if it doesn't seem obvious at the time, what, what kind of an impact you're, you're making. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of things are, are so simple. It's just, uh, it, the internet has, and social media has really ruined us in a lot of ways. It's just, we've become so divorced from each other. Um, for example, I, I've been trying to, I'm like campaigning for, <laughs> with people my age, we need to bring back unannounced visits. Um, because yeah. here's what I noticed. The, the older generations, my, my elderly friends, they don't call or text ahead and they don't text you when they get to the front door to say I'm here. They just come over and knock on the door and like, it's true story. Absolutely. And yeah. sometimes like I'm on the toilet or I'm just not in the mood to talk and yeah. I don't answer the door and that's fine. And then they'll try again later. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, if I know they stop by, I'll, I'll reach out when I feel like I'm, I'm ready to, uh, but yeah, because we have to mentally prepare for social interaction <laughs> and you have to make sure that all the all the climate is right before you can engage in, in that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Guilty. Guilty. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, <laughs> I'm not as uh, as talented at that as socially adept as these older folks are. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to make an effort because I recognize that like, man, people my age our whole generation would become kind of shy mm-hmm. and awkward. Yeah, it's because we're just so used to hiding behind our phones and, and this this like communication medium that's that's easier, it's safer. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, to put yourself out there and just go talk to someone face to face is always you're taking a risk. You might yeah. get rejected. It's Ooh. you know you might it might not it might be grumpy. Um, but I've been encouraging my friends, people my age, like when they talk about coming over, well, also because just the nature of this building and what I'm doing, it's like, please just come over anytime. You don't have to tell me you're coming. Just show up. I'm usually yeah. there. Just like, just knock on all the windows until you find me. Like I'll be in there somewhere. It is a big space. Yeah. So you could be anywhere. Like I, I yeah. love unannounced visitors. Um, so I think one of the simplest things people can do is just, just really try to exercise your social muscles mm-hmm. uh it's like just making small talk with the cashier at the grocery store it's like that kind of thing it's just yeah. getting in the habit of it saying waving to your neighbors don't even have to verbalize saying hi asking how people are it's such an easy thing to do and the more you do it the easier it gets okay. and the yeah. more it it changes you it makes you like i felt in the past like i'm kind of an introverted person and i think actually i'm I'm actually pretty extroverted. It's just that I've at times gotten in the habit of, uh, you know, kind of isolating myself and then I get awkward and feel <laughs> weird. It's and... kind of that self-preservation, right? You you want to keep yourself safe and not potentially be, um, you know, vulnerable. I think it, a lot of it comes down to being vulnerable. It, it's funny you, you mentioned this because uh, just this last summer, I went on an all-girls trip with, with some of my my friends and we went to Glenwood Springs and they kept laughing at me because everywhere we went I was paying compliments to these strangers right that's just so second nature to me it's like oh I really like your shoes uh, your hair looks amazing I love that color whatever it is and they kept like laughing at me because I was just talking to complete strangers and they would never right I'm like but that's just you know you never know what one kind word can do 
And I'll, I'll be honest, the reason that I started doing it and putting myself in those awkward situations of talking to complete strangers was um, hearing um, Kevin Hines speak. Are you familiar with Kevin Hines? Mm-mm. So Kevin Hines is a is a young gentleman who um, was suffering with suicidal ideation, and he decided to jump off of the Golden State Bridge. And as he's walking to the middle of the bridge, he told himself, if even just one person smiles or waves at me, I won't jump. And that bridge is really long, right? So he got to the middle of the bridge and not a single person stopped him, asked him how he was, waved at him, nothing. Not even as he was climbing over the rail. And um, it's it's an amazing story. He lived to tell about his 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 jump. Um, and when when he said that, it really just stuck with me that you really don't know the power of your words and how something something as trivial as your physical appearance can totally change somebody's day, totally change their outlook, you know. And uh, I think if we could just get back to being kind before anything else, mm-hmm. I think we could we could change so many people's lives. Yeah. And that takes getting out from behind our screens. And that's something that out of COVID I hate is that we used to have in-person meetings, massive in-person meetings all the time. It was never in the office because of these meetings. But since COVID, everybody's gotten so comfortable being in the Zoom or being in the Google Meet that the effort to get back together in person isn't there anymore because we can hide behind the screen and we can multitask and we can, you know, chime in when, when we need to. That human connection, that basic, um, uh, ma- ma- oh gosh, Maslow? Maslow's hierarchy. Hierarchy of, of needs. You know, if we could get back to that. We could change the world. Yeah. And this is a, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. This is a, <laughs> this is a whole other conversation. But, uh, you know, the AI revolution uh-huh. is kind of starting to happen. And mm-hmm. uh, I've been, you know, trying to pay attention to, to that, listening to some scientists and tech CEOs explain, like, what what's going to happen in mm-hmm. the, the next five, ten years and what we need to prepare ourselves for Uh it's it's Scary. nuts. Um, but yeah. one thing I've one comment I heard was when they're explaining that, you know, AI on a long enough timeline, like it may be five years, 10, 20 years, but eventually AI is going to replace humans for most everything that we do. And whenever that does happen, the only thing that will be left for us is human connection. Yeah, that's yeah. like almost the only thing we'll, that will be left for us to, to do with our time. That's scary, um, right? And, and of course, the things that we choose to do, like, I, I think there will, I mean, it's, I'm not worried. I think I'm optimistic about all this. I think <laughs> we're going to be hanging out, cooking a lot of home-cooked meals, growing our own vegetables, making art, and playing music all the oh. time. I mean, I feel like this this could be a sort of a heaven on earth. Ah. Um, but... I like that perspective because I see doom and gloom and for you yep. to bring that positive approach to it. Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think there is the potential for both yeah. just as I think there has always been through all of human history. It's like nothing is guaranteed. We could fail at any point and yeah. bring about hell on earth or we can bring about heaven on earth. And it's really just, just a choice mm. and what we choose to fight for. But, uh, I, we're, I had like an hour and a half almost, yeah, yeah. and I don't want to keep you too long. 
I have a few more questions. Also, I think uh, two hours is probably a good limit for these episodes. Sure. That's a lot for people to commit to. Um, <laughs> but just uh, to get to the end of my questions that I had for you. Um, so I noticed there's a couple billboards around. I think Hope Squad is behind some of that. I noticed the one by Sutherland's that I think it calls out uh, middle-aged men in particular yeah. as being at risk. And it suggests, you know, reach out to a, a middle-aged man that you know. Can you yeah. tell us how those were made and and uh, what those messages are. Yeah, I'm so glad that you that you saw those because uh, those are my babies, right? Um, again, it's grant money that uh, we were given at the Southeast Utah Health Department um, through the the Live On Utah Suicide Prevention Campaign, and we I really really wanted to tailor our suicide prevention messaging to our community. They have a great a, a great media profile of just generic. Um, you know, how to tell if your coworker is experiencing suicidal ideation, you ask. Well, that's all well and good, but I, I felt like in our community, it could just as easily be ignored and not, there's no context to what it's referring to. So I worked with, um, with the manager over at, at Sutherland's and I said, look, I've got these, these posters that have the live on campaign that have the, the hope squad of carbon Amory grand counties branding on it, as well as the Southeast Utah health department branding. Can you help me get the message out to these middle-aged miners and construction workers and stuff? Cause that's our demographic that we lose more times than not. And he was so on board with it. He was so excellent. And he said, I will keep it up year round as long as they are good posters, you know, cause they flap in the wind. And he said, the only time I'll take them down is when Sutherland's has, has um, um, sales and stuff that they're promoting. And he has held true to his word. Um, Kyle over there is an awesome guy. He has put them back up every time. And now I think there's just one remaining, but they're they're a little old now. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were damaged, but he, um, you know, he's a big supporter of what we're trying to do. He has allowed me to come in and teach his whole staff uh, suicide prevention training, that QPR, which, which just speaks volumes to um, the buy-in that, that our community has that in an industry where you wouldn't think suicide prevention training would be needed per se, that they're open to it. You know, Intermountain Electronics is another place in Komatsu um, where they're those stereotypical, uh, you know, uh, quote-unquote macho guys, you know, working construction and building things and working with their hands and grunting and you know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like be, I'm trying to be stereotypical, stereotypical, not necessarily in a negative way, but anyway, um, they're all open to this message because they find value in suicide prevention. So for Kyle to hang up those posters and, um, go for Katipas, whenever I have the funding to put up billboards, he'll cut me a deal on, on his billboards so that the message gets out. He has, he finds value in it. And uh, we just continue to promote wherever we can in whatever creative ways we can come up with to reach that that demographic. And the way that I do it is completely different than you know even even you into Basin does it or or Northeastern or you, all of these different places have their own nooks and niches on how to get their prevention messages out. And I hope that the way that I approach it reaches that demographic.
Yeah, I can tell you firsthand that at least that one billboard by Sutherland's, because I go to Sutherland's a lot, yeah. has has influenced me. It's been effective. Uh, it's been just a nice reminder for myself when I felt depressed, because I've felt depressed plenty of times yeah. when I've passed that and been reminded uh, that I'm not alone. And it's also reminded me that I need to look out for, for, for the other guys. Yeah. Uh, I will speak to that, uh, you know, the masculine uh, macho culture since, uh, you know, as, as a woman, you don't want to make fun. But, no, uh, I don't. I really don't want to be disrespectful or anything. But, but I, I will not make fun, but um, address it because I think it's it's another really important thing. Um, I think, you know, men take pride in their work and their labor and how hard they work. And unfortunately, due to, I think just nobody's fault it's just the kind of american culture of uh can do hard working and industrialism um this is what built this country and yeah. all of carbon county thank but, goodness but that did create kind of a, a working culture of men sacrificing themselves which i think is true in war and mm -hmm. um in their employment and how they feel they need to provide for their mm -hmm. families. I think mm -hmm. men have a tendency to self-sacrifice to a point of self-abuse. Yeah. And I can speak to this because I've experienced it. And, you know, in my kind of late 20s, early 30s, I, I became aware that I had internalized this. And what it looks like is, you know, you're on your work in construction or, or whatever. I mean, that's my field that I've have experience in. And You'll forgo the the personal protective equipment. You'll you'll not slow down to take your time as you're like you know crashing down on your knees to you know wrench a pipe. Right. Um, you'll you'll just push yourself too hard and um, you know hurt hurt your body because you you feel like there's there's glory in that right. um, basically and because you're you want to prove yourself and you want to impress the other guys and it's there's a little bit of a competitiveness. And I mean, on one hand, like the drive for men to to be builders and providers and, um, you know, sacrifice themselves, that's noble in a way. And I don't think we should uh, suppress that. I think we just need to help evolve this culture to be a little bit more healthy and yes. and uh, talk a little bit more about self-love and self-care yes. that those seem like real Woo woo hippy dippy terms to be bringing into the coal mine, but right? <laughs> Agreed. I, I yeah. Think, like, I think what it looks like is just uh, for me. Um, I mean, one thing I try to do is just really encourage other people to use PPE. It's like, dude, your hearing is precious. Like, yes. don't your mess eyesight, with that. your your hearing, your knees, yeah. your back. Yeah. And and it's like those are the things when you blow out your knees or your back and when you're in old age, that's gonna lead you to using opioids. Yes. And that's what's gonna lead you to maybe thinking about suicide. And yeah. uh same thing with uh just like protecting your lungs. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't wanna be on oxygen when you're in your fifties, sixties because your lungs are shot and again, it's gonna lead to the same things and depression and all kinds of things. So I, that's one of my theories about like what is at the root, like, you know, where can we go way back in time and try to like cut the, these things off at the source? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's one. The other theory I wanted to just quickly touch on is I think we should pay more attention to our nutrition. Um, the people at all of all ages, 
Um, it's a really uncomfortable thing to talk about because basically the elephant in the room is that most of us are addicted to sugar mm. and processed foods. And, guilty. And again, yeah, <laughs> guilty. I can speak from experience. Yeah. I'm not like judging other people from a place of like perfection. Uh, it's like sugar is one of the most addictive substances in the Absolutely. world. It's just as addictive as, as heroin, essentially, um, yeah. as opiates. And uh, so it's... I think it's a good thing to to acknowledge because it it make, might make you a little less uh, if you are at all judgmental of people struggling with like you know opiate addiction. Like you can recognize that oh actually I'm I'm basically you know addicted myself to to this. The other thing that I'm com- completely addicted to that I'm I'm again trying to like kind of get myself off of is caffeine. It's yes. just the same thing. Yes. So sugar, caffeine. Uh, we have gotten so far foods. away. Um, so and I'm guilty of this, right? We have gotten so far away from viewing our food as fuel to our body. And in an effort to uh, create a comfort, you know, because we find comfort in food or whatever uh, as an addiction, we turn turn to food to celebrate. We turn to food to, uh, to fill our emotions. We, we're always turning to food. We have gotten away from what the sole purpose of, of, of food is. And on the flip side of that, have started adding so much crap to our foods, uh, hormones and and artificial crap, that it is cha- literally changing the biology and physiology of our bodies. It's making, you know, it's making girls rush into puberty more. It's it's creating, um, uh, it's creating an an environment to where cancer is more prevalent. It's not a question of if you're going to get cancer, it's when, right? Because of all this, this horrible stuff that we have entered into our body. And yes, that plays into our mental health and the way that we see ourselves and the the way that we move and all of that stuff absolutely plays into mental health and our physical health. I 100% agree with, with where you're going on that and, and being able to recognize those addictions early and try and curtail them to something more healthy, the sooner the better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I I would love to see nothing more than investments in local food and agriculture, uh, ranching, uh, you know, just the more we can get local high quality animal products and fresh produce, the better. Yeah. Um, I think we, again, already have a lot of good things going for us. And that's kind of one of the strengths and advantages of living where we do and being in a rural place. So, but uh, also we've got, you know, water shortage issues. So I think investments in like sustainable agriculture, uh, vertical gardening, hydroponics, Mm. I mean, that's just one of those things that it is not at all obvious, but I think that could actually improve these suicide statistics, you know, and may not see it, the results of it for a a few years or a generation, but um, that's one of my kind of pet theories. And I have a real passion for community gardens because you kind of get all that plus the social interaction. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's see. Let's wrap this up. I got just a, a couple more. Um, anything else besides we talked about a lot of things, but any any other advice or things we didn't touch on in yeah. terms of what we all can do to help prevent yeah. suicide? Thank you for that question, because I think one of the. Uh, things that gets overlooked or maybe not uh, valued as much as I am only one person. There is a whole workforce 
of of helping hands that could come into play when it comes to suicide prevention. Um, the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention is always looking for volunteers to help um, table uh, events or put on events, community walks, and and you know uh, other other things. And uh, this goes back to that whole um, service portion of, of my job. And in that, because I am a, a board member of the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention with the Utah chapter having that connection with a nationally known organization has only brought good to, into our community. But by limiting it or putting the responsibility on, oh, well, and I'm not saying anybody has said this, but like, oh, Amanda's got it. She's a loud enough voice in the community. There needs to be more voices. I can't be the only one to carry this message throughout the three counties. We need more, we need more activism in fighting for funding. And uh, the more that we are talking about it, the more we're gonna get noticed and the more likely it is that we will get funding so that we can elongate these programs that we're, we're putting into place. And, and, and I would love to work myself out of a job, but I need help. It's a, it's a, call, a call to action to the whole community that they, uh, see value in what we're trying to do and be on board with it and and join join forces with me to create a real everlasting change in our communities for suicide prevention and awareness cool there was one last thing i wanted to well i want to just thank you personally for all your work and your your commitment to this community i you inspire me to to continue stepping up my own game and um, looking out for people, and I'm really proud to to be a friend of yours and a collaborator. And I look forward to continuing this work with you. Um, I appreciate you so much. We're, we're really lucky to have you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You know, selfishly, I do it so that my my lineage isn't completely scorned from losing my husband and that my daughter can live a long and very prosperous, mentally healthy life and can, you know, mm -hmm. make changes of her own in a completely different way if she'd like. Yeah. You know? And selfishly, I do these kinds of things because it just makes me feel good. Yeah. And I want to, I just want to feel good. <laughs> yes. Like I, I have always struggled with depression and the best cure for depression I found is like, go try to help other people. And, yeah. uh, you know, seek the healing of others is how you'll heal yourself. Yeah, I agree um, with that. So yeah, sentiment. it's okay to be selfish and your your motivations for wanting to do good <laughs> in the world. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, that's just human nature. I, God made us that way. It's yeah. for a reason. Um, so everybody can search for the Hope Squad of Carbon and Emory in Grand County on Facebook to yes. follow. And that'll be the best place to be aware of all the events. You put on so many cool events. People can go a lot of like free family friendly events yeah. where especially in the winter time it's nice just to have a place to go hang out and enjoy community and games and yeah. music went to the the event at the church last week and it was awesome just you know everybody's enjoying a bowl of hot soup and playing some bingo and then <laughs> there was this like children's choir singing yeah. christmas carols it was it was awesome i had such a good time got to have a real couple of really great conversations with some people there um and the last thing I wanted to thank you for is is just giving this kind of putting the spotlight on men a little bit, uh, because you know just 
the statistics are clear that men are disproportionately affected by some of these things. Yeah. And like you said, with the, the substance use epidemic problem, it's not a zero sum game. Like, yeah. you know, giving more resources and attention to, to suicide prevention doesn't take away from, from that issue. And it's, I think the culture at large has gotten a little bit confused in recent years just with, um, you know, the gains and strides that feminism has made for women's rights has been amazing. But I, and I think some people feel threatened by there being attention and resources given to men. Yeah. They feel like that's going to take away from women or somehow set them back. And it's just not true. Like no. the same thing. It's not, it's not zero sum. It's, it's both and we need to yes both and we need yeah. to care for men and women and we we need to not ignore men's issues um, and this is a really big one so yeah. well not to take away from that Orin and and uh, I I would be remiss if I didn't say that it's about humans regardless of how you identify and uh, what your preferences are um, it's a people issue and I want to be an advocate for the people to be better people for other people. So, yeah. yeah. Agreed. Okay. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Yeah. We could probably talk for another four hours and not cover everything. <laughs> I think we should do this again in like six months. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, right. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll see you in six months. Okay. No, I'll see you sooner than that, but okay. we'll, we'll record again in six months. Very good. Bye, everybody. Bye.